Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 107. It's all about artificial intelligence in the middle school. And we're here with Dr. Nisha Talagala. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster Paredes, and I'm a teacher who codes. So welcome, Nisha. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I know that Kelly's been carrying around your book in her backpack for weeks now and telling me about it every chance she gets. So we're just thrilled to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we've thought that this would be a wonderful topic to get into because as much as there have been a lot of recent headlines in the area of artificial intelligence and some breakthroughs that have happened in terms of accessibility of some really advanced artificial intelligence, you know, kind of broadly to the world, we think it's it's always an interesting topic for us to talk about how this affects learning and how it affects students and how we can bring more of this into the classroom. So welcome and, and we're looking forward to a really great conversation with you. Thank you. Same here. Yeah. So before we get into the the fun part of AI, let's start with the wins of the week, something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom. And Anisha, we're going to have you go first because it's kind of fun to put our guests on the spot just a tiny bit before we get going. No worries. I've been able to remember a little bit of last week. So let me, let me see what I can go with that. So I would say maybe the win is, so I have a 14-year-old daughter. She came up with a secret project that I'm not allowed to talk about, but I... And since the ChatGPT API is not yet out, I've been looking for options, right? Because that's what I would use if there was. And then I came across your article about ChatLama. <laughs> I'm super excited. I'm pretty sure she can use ChatLama. It's all so open source. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm in. So I think that is probably my win of the week is that I finally figured out how to help her with her project and you know keep it on the right side of crazy. Oh. So that's probably the win. The not-so-win of this week is I seem to have developed an addiction to fried chicken. I've eaten an extremely large amount of it during the week. I don't know why, and I can't seem to stop. So. Ah, you're making me hungry. I know. <laughs> Before my doctor gets involved. So. Yeah, your not-so-win might become my not-so-win very soon, I think. <laughs> I found this place, and they have such good fried chicken. I just keep DoorDash from that place over and over and over again. And that's hilarious. There's a place by me called Fran's Original Fried Chicken. And it's one of those places where they've got the ne same neon sign in the window that's probably been there for 50 years. And it's probably still the same grease that they're frying it in. So it must be amazing. And I'm I'm like both excited and terrified to try it. Well, my kids have figured out how to make fried chicken. So that's like they're, we'll cook tonight. I'm like, oh, great, fried chicken. <laughs> so I'm on the opposite side. I'm done with the fried chicken. <laughs> Sean, you go in first or next? Well Sure, I can I can share one. I, I had a bit of travel this week. I went to Cincinnati, Ohio for the weekend in February, which I know you're thinking, how did you pull off Cincinnati in February? What a great, <laughs> great opportunity. Honestly, it was a Cincinnati is a place that I lived for many years when I first started my career. So I'm, you know, pretty familiar with the city, although it's changed a lot. But the win was that my daughter was singing in a national honor choir that she got selected for there. And it was her first kind of big performance of this magnitude. And there were 215 elementary school students singing in the choir with my daughter, actually 214 plus her. And I just, it was one of those moments where I saw how hard she had worked to do that. She was right up front and center in the, in the choir. And I was sitting right up front and center across from her to watch her sing. And when they opened their mouths and just this wave of sound came towards us in this beautiful concert hall that was built in the 1870s, I just had this huge moment of dad. Did pride you cry? I was so proud. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, I cried. I did. 
I did. I admit it. It was it was a beautiful moment. The music was beautiful. You know, these kids were just singing their hearts out. And it was really amazing to see such ta- talented students from all over the country come together. So my win was was very clear this week. It was it was nothing to do with technology and everything to do with just a beautiful moment. And I'm going to remember it for a long time to come. That's very sweet. I can see it. I knew you would be crying as soon as you started telling the story. He's the emotional one. of the So I always want to share now about my my course. I'm taking a data science course with Georgia Tech, six months boot camp, and it's kicking my butt and I'm loving every second of it. And I want to say that my my win is we started MongoDB and I was like, oh, wait, I'm going to pull up all my old videos from Michael Kennedy's cohort about Fast API and MongoDB and actually learn it this time. Because when you did it the first time, it was a little bit over my head, but now we're starting to dive into it. But that's not really a win yet. So I think, I think, I think, I think my big win actually this week in exploratory robotics is the kids are starting to pick up in chess again. And they're like, we can play chess in robotics. I'm like, 100%. Everything to do with coding, problem solve, looking forward, thinking, following patterns, looking for different alternatives to solutions. I was like, yes, we're going to do chess this week. And they were, they were so happy and they were so involved and we have a lot of chess players in exploratory. And I think when people walk in to visit the classroom, they're looking around. They're like, this is robotics? I'm like, yes. Problem solving 101, go. <laughs> so it was like a really good win. And the kids were excited that they had a change of pace. I still had my normal kids that are playing with a couple of robots and we're building automata kind of scenes with spinning dinosaurs with some of the younger kids. But most of them are playing chess this week. So it was kind of cool. Nice. Any any fails this week? Oh, tons, tons. I'm having issues trying to build my histogram with a tuple in a list, but I'll get there. So it, it'll happen. <laughs> just got to crack the code. Just trying to dig into this data and, and I'm just like, damn tuples. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we'll get there. My... <laughs> Well, my fail this week was a fail up until about an hour ago, and it was just some code I was trying to work through, and I kept getting this weird error, and it was all in JavaScript, which I'm not super familiar or comfortable with. So it took me a while to get there, and once I figured it out, it 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 all made sense, and I was able to work around it. But I had a couple hours where it just was not working, and I was getting cryptic error messages, and I had that moment of realizing, oh yeah, this is what it feels like to be back in the beginning of learning a language again and not having that immediate knowledge of what's happening or how to fix it. So it worked out really well in the end and it's running beautifully, but it was a nice little humbling moment that I think I kind of appreciated when it happened. I love that because it's a good reminder for us all that that learning process. Yeah, I mean, it was joyful. Something about yeah. being able to get it to work and then having it work. It just. Well, yeah. And it's like it's that breakthrough moment where you just have that rush of like, yes, it, it worked. And and I was I was so far behind. I had to I think I Googled at one point, like, where do I find the line numbers in a JavaScript ta- a stack trace? <laughs> like I couldn't figure out exactly where to go. And and then I got it working and that helped helped a ton. But it was uh, it was a bit of a tough sledding before I got there. Man. Well, I'm glad for that. And then you got there, like always in the end. Right. It's awesome. Persistence is key. I want to dig into this book. Sorry. I'm like, let's go. Let's go. Yeah, let's let's go. do it. Because, you know, in two weeks, I'm starting a, an AI, our AI unit. So I'm going to let you go. And Sean, you can start. 
it's no i mean i i just love this this is so kelly it's like i have this unit coming up so two weeks ahead of time i'm going to get a guest in here we're going to talk about ai i'm going to have a head start on it <laughs> she's she going to write my lesson plan so much, for me and done <laughs> she is so much better prepared than i am <laughs> with all of these things so i i this is the stuff that i enjoy the most about working with kelly is this kind of <laughs> leaning forward approach that she always has so nisha we wanted to just start by by introducing you a little bit you've got quite the background, you know, and and training and knowledge to bring to bear on this subject. And I think it, it's probably one of those things I'm, I'm guessing a little bit here that when you first got into your career field, there was really no way of projecting this far ahead to see where things like machine learning and AI would go. But you ended up being kind of uniquely positioned for this in the beginning. So I would say, um, just to, just to summarize a bit, so you have your PhD in computer science, right, from UC Berkeley, which is a phenomenal school. And I still always think about the the book by Cliff, what's his name, about Inside the Cuckoo's Nest, where he was chasing down KGB hackers from the UC Berkeley Astrophysics Lab. It's an amazing book. But I, I've always had a soft place in my heart for the UC Berkeley computer science programs as a result. It's a phenomenal world-class institution. But since then, you've also created a an organization called AI Club. You've been the founder there. You've also started AI startups for banks and large corporations to help them build AIs, and that was successfully acquired. You've also organized conferences in AI. But I would say probably the thing that that is the most relevant here and the mo- thing I was most excited about is the work that you've been doing with your own daughter to help her learn about AI and what's possible because there aren't a lot of materials out there for students of her age to learn about AI. Absolutely. So, so how did I do? Was that a pretty decent professional summary? That's awesome. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> anything I missed or anything you'd like to add to that? No, I think I'm good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So Kelly, I'm going to let you have the, the first question and you're on mute. I got a dog in the background and he loves this time of night. So it's always good for our live streaming. So, We'll skip right ahead because you've done so many, so many things in in AI, and I, I just want to dive right into the book because I think our listeners will be interested in a lot of that. And I know you wrote this book, you and your your co author wrote this book, kind of with the mindset for your your kids. What what was kind of like your thoughts on that? Like, start us off. Like, go back. You made this amazing book. Yeah, so I think the book sort of grew out of our teaching experiences. So, you know, so I started, you know, by trying to teach my daughter AI when she was nine. You know, that was five years ago. And I created a first project for her. And I realized a few things. One is actually it's very engaging. But then she ran out of things to do very quickly because she ran out of data. And I found that getting data for her was boring for me and boring for her. Right. And then the thing kind of stalled. Right. And but it, I was kept it in the back of my mind and stuff like that. And then, you know, we started, you know, teaching her a little bit. Then we started teaching other kids her age. And over time, we developed sort of a set of curriculums, you know, so, you know and things like that. And we kind of started maybe in, in sort of the way you're we, we have a class. It's coming up in two weeks. What are we going to teach? Came up with something. Oh, that worked. Oh, that part didn't work. Kids were bored, you know. Stuff like that. And then we got it better. And then we had a pile of curriculums that we started, you know, sharing with other teachers. And then we sort of realized that maybe putting a bunch of this stuff into book form would be helpful. You know, and I personally love books, you know, even though I do get a lot of stuff online, I still love books. I like having it in book form. And and there's and the thing with the problem with AI books out there is that they're either really simple or really, really complicated. Hundred percent. You know, you start 
they 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 start off really nice and you know fun and you're like okay i'm in good shape here and then suddenly the word bayesian statistics comes up and you you know fall into some off some cliff and you're like i have no idea what just happened you know and somehow you never seem to dig out of that cliff and it and so we were Go ahead. Yeah. No, please. Continue. No, yeah. I was going to say, I'm going to stop right there because like as you started the book, you would think like you open this book and right away, the, like I, I said this in our episode, our previous episode, when I was reviewing the books, you start off with this book and the, what I love about this, and I don't know if you did some AI studies on, or if your publisher helped you out, but the way that you chunked the reading, I've told all my, my students, I was like, go read this book. It says it's for teachers, but you're smarter than them anyways. So just go read the book. And it's in like these little paragraph chunks. And you really just go in straight away, like in page 16 about anomaly detection and object recognition and speech recognition. And that's great. So continue. Sorry, I have to add on that. I have to visualize this for you. Well, I guess, yeah, one thing is that we basically just opened up a bunch of textbooks, right? And we're like, what do these books look like? You know, and first thing we noticed is there's a lot of pictures for every, you know, unit of text. So we said, okay, we need to have a 50% text to picture ratio. And we weren't there. And then we went back and just redid everything and said, okay, we need to add some pictures here and pictures there. We had an illustrator draw stuff for us and stuff like that. But yeah, so that was sort of one of our goals was to just sort of, there, you can go a really long way before you fall off a cliff. And you I frankly never have to if you don't, you know, unless you really want to. The problem is that it depends on the order in which you, you know, it's presented to you. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I think there's a lot of concepts within AI and especially within machine learning that are really hard to grasp and really hard to kind of access with your, you know, cognitive skills without pictures, right? So I remember we were doing a workshop, Kelly and I, a few years ago with machine learning. And um, I, I realized that the professor had explained that whole idea of a gradient curve in such a beautiful way with with illustrations and with some annotations on it to kind of point out different parts of it. And what I realized, you know, 25 years too late is that he was describing a really practical use of calculus that would have been really helpful to me back when I was actually taking the classes because it became, it became alive, right? Like the visualizations made it live, whereas the equations by themselves or the dry explanation couldn't do that. The, the pictures made it come to life. Yeah, no, this is really, I don't know. So when I was young, nobody bothered to tell me why math mattered. For some reason, I liked it, so I kind of got away with it. But kids these days don't put up with that kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> they will come and ask you, and I'm doing this, why? I could be doing 300 other things instead of doing this. Can you explain to me why this matters? And well, and, yeah. and even just that accessibility of knowledge too, right? So they can, they you're in a marketplace of teaching now. You're not the sole source. You don't have a monopoly on it as a teacher. So you know, you, it, you can either lean into that and say, that's great. Here's some other places for you to learn from, or you can try to resist that to your peril, you know? And I, I think that's a, a really good way of, of kind of highlighting that is when they come to you saying, why do I need to learn this? You're competing. Yes. And, and it's actually, I think that's one of the coolest things about AI is that it is really easy to connect AI to the map. I was just going to say that as you dive deep and I'm like, and again, mind you, I am now just a coder of five years and a biologist in the, in, which is on the way on the, obviously on the way on the other side of actually using technology at my time. Now they do it all the time. But as I'm digging in here and looking at the math, I actually used, I used four pages of your book today because we were doing a, yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, it's like buy the book people, educators buy the book. 
It's amazing. We're doing a unit on big data. And again, finding the data for eighth grader to get. And we've learned requests and I could go into scraping and I could do all this stuff, but we don't really have that much time. So I just want them to get the data and tell the story. And you go into the storytelling and we're not even talking going into the linear regression and all the other types, but just going into the fact of what is your story and everything. I don't even know what the question is. I just love your book. Hold on. Sorry. But (laughs) when you're going through it, when you were you were thinking about this, I guess you got a fundamentals of where you came from and how you solved problems. Is that mm-hmm. is that similar to think? Like Yeah, I think the thing is that I think maybe one thing that you know benefited myself and Sindhu is that we have used AI in the real world. We've built it, we've used it to solve problems, and we also know how people use it. So being able to sort of simplify that and provide it to people, you know. AI is not really what matters. It's the fact that it's useful to solve a problem Mm -hmm. is what matters. And half the battle is, okay, I'm excited about AI, but maybe the problem isn't right for it. Absolutely. First is your problem. Do I even know what my problem is? Because AI can't help you if you have no idea what your problem is. (laughs) What about like, how how did you include like misuses of AI or misapplications of AI? Because like the the real world is a incredible teacher for that, right? Showing showing you opportunities where people have used AI when it probably wasn't appropriate or wasn't ethical or whatever, you know, it, it could be. How did you incorporate that into your thought process around the book? Chapter two. So I think that is- oh, thank you. I actually don't remember. I'm kidding. I was just making that up. Sorry. I liked it. What I find is that sometimes in our real world examples, in particular examples that kids can relate to, can go a long way towards that, you know. And there are some examples that are hard for kids to relate to just because, you know, they're problems that adults understand. But I can kind of like start with sort of a simple thing, which is the interaction between AI and your privacy. So you can ask kids a bunch of questions like, okay, if your grocery store or your shopping, you know, website knows that you like eggs, is this a problem? And most of the class will say, nah, it's not a problem. There will be a kid who says, my interest in eggs is none of their business, you know? Stuff like that. And then you ask, okay, what if they know that, you know, your dad gets medication for back pain? Now they're a little, I don't, I'm not so comfortable anymore. What if they decide to tell your dad's boss that he has back pain? Now pretty much the entire class will say no. And so sometimes just kind of letting them think through it in a way that they can relate to it, they can kind of understand that there's no black and white. And there's a lot of subtlety. And what really matters there is their opinion. (laughs) Like there's no hard and fast place between most people will be okay with eggs. Almost everybody will be ba- you know, unhappy with the back pain disclosure. But somewhere in between is your comfort level. Absolutely. And, and it's probably important to know what it is. So stuff like that. You know, I have them do exercises. I ask them questions. It's amazing how much bias there is out there if you just look. And, and in all seriously, seriousness, you touch on topics that I think people who are not in technology don't really understand. They read the headlines and they go, you know, chat GPT and fake news and and deep fakes. And, you know, they don't really understand the words that they're necessarily saying or how to teach it. And that concept of going through these little problems and the unplugged exercises is, is a really neat guide for teachers. Did you... Did you have the mindset to like hope that this gets into more classrooms, more more schools? Was that the mindset of your book? Oh, that's definitely, that's definitely. You know, one of the reasons why we decided to put it in a book is because we felt the reach 
would be much greater. And by working with students and by working with schools, we kind of realized that you need to have sort of every type of exercise. You know, unplugged activities are just so helpful because, you know, teachers don't want the kids to be on computers all the time. You really want them to be able to shut down their computer and actually think and, you know, converse and discuss. And so it's important for that reason. And then, you know, when you go to like Asia and things like that part, you know, there's a lot of, you know, lack of, you know, Wi-Fi, there's no stable electricity. So sometimes the, the unplugged is all they can do. So we try to create enough that, you know, a lot of, you know, it can be accessible to a lot of audiences, but at the same time, AI being AI, there are things you can only do online. Yeah. So you want to have a lot of online activities, but you also want to have every other kind as well. So yeah, our goal is absolutely to get it as far out, you know, to as many students and teachers as possible. Awesome. And, and then I guess the other question I was, what are your hopes for like keeping this book current? Because with, you know, Chat Llama coming out already after Chat GPT, and then the next thing and the next thing and the next thing with it being open source, what are your kind of hopes that how long is the longevity of this book? And, you know, when are you going to write the next one <laughs> kind of thing? Yeah, it's a really good question. And this is something that Sindhu and I talked about and talk about often. So I think there are kind of two dimensions to this. So this is volume one. You know, independent of your question, we are working on a volume two. Volume two is a more deeper because this, you know, it has a lot of stuff, but it doesn't have all the things that you might want to cover. The, the other fact of how do you keep the books current, you know, the best thing that we've thought of is that we're thinking of, in, you know, including online supplements to the book fairly often. So if you, you know, if you, you know, get the book and, the, you know, you can just go and say, okay, what are the online supplements? Because, you know, the book definitely, you know, will get old relative to tech. And it's not practical to necessarily ask people to keep buying, you know, mm -hmm. next month, I have to, you know, you have to buy a new physical book. That's not practical. So I think we'll just basically re release the book every once in a while, but we'll have online supplements. Excellent. That we can add on to all the time that people can then just go and look, hey, what's new? You know, what else should I know besides what's in the book? Oh. And sorry, I'm going to totally monopolize all the questions. And so for educators out there, for me, I like to pick a book. I'm like scan through it. I'm like, oh, this is a great topic. I'm going to pull some resources from that. Some people like to sort of go from start to finish. How long does it take for maybe, I know you probably don't cover maybe exactly like the book because you have your own curriculum, I'm sure, in your club. But if the, someone was supposed to do this kind of curriculum book as a guide how long do you think it would take or how long did it take your daughter to get through that much so, so one thing is that we actually publish four curriculums just for the book so if you want to get the curriculums they're actually online and they match the book exactly so and i think there are qr codes in the book for that if you're teaching this entire book top to bottom i think it'll take about a year of instruction you know two terms basically Cover the book. See, you know, so that's a hint out that you need longer than I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. You need longer than nine weeks to teach Python. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's the, and then the other thing I think is that is, you know, depending on what you're trying to do, you know, if your goal is to try to give them an introduction to the technology, help them appreciate the ethics, maybe they don't code as much, then that's one way. If you want them to really get into the coding, which I strongly recommend, you know, then that of course will take longer because they really have to, you know, wrap their brains around it. But yeah, and the book is about a year's worth of, you know, nice. curriculum in there. Do you want to jump in, Sean? I want I wanted to switch gears a little bit because I was reading your Forbes article about the three E's and and I really liked the way that that was put. And it's something that I've in my professional life have been thinking more about as well. For example, this week we're writing our annual objectives for my team. So what are we what are we putting out there as our goals for the year, the things we want to accomplish? And I have two, you know, 
relatively junior engineers working on on my team now. And one of them is fresh out of her master's program and just started a, a few weeks ago. And so we were writing our objectives and I could see that she was kind of stressing about how to formulate the the writing and everything. And I said, okay, well, just get it kind of close enough and then put it in chat GPT and tell it to rewrite it, right? Fair enough, yes. And, and she had that moment where she was like, wait a minute, I can do that? Like, that's okay? And I was like, well, well you have to balance your effectiveness and your efficiency as a, as a engineer with your, you know, your time, right? Like, you know, there's nothing that says that you can't use this for it. We're not putting anything in there that's particularly sensitive information or something that's a corporate secret. So why not use the tool to help, you know, get yourself a little bit further ahead or give yourself a new perspective on how to write these. And so when I read your article to prepare for this, it really struck me that those three E's of the, the ethics of it, the effectiveness and the efficiency of it, really struck me as a great framework for evaluating not just ChatGPT, but other AI tools and other tools that are available to engineers. And I just wanted to kind of like get a little bit of a summary from you on how that how you thought about that, how you write about it, advice that you would give to, you know, new people coming from that student mindset into the professional world, how to think about using these tools to increase their effectiveness and how to use it to learn better. I guess, as they're making that transition. Sure. Yeah, no, makes a lot of sense. So I think, you know, this, I mean, I, I have, you know, both in, in AI Club as well as in my past companies, I also have, you know, employees at various levels that I've mentored. And one of the things that I think is a, a big transition for particularly a fresh grad is you, unless you were doing like a, a thesis of some kind, like a master's thesis or a PhD thesis, unless you did that, your entire college life is essentially doing things people told you to do usually very precise, very structured things. And if you did them well and on time, you got good grades and you're, hey, I feel good, right? When you go into a company, if you're lucky, your first few jobs will be like that. Someone will tell you what to do. You don't get a say in whether you do it or not. You do it, you feel good, Everybody, everyone's happy. But as you become more and more senior, it really comes down to, are you solving a problem? And sometimes that problem isn't even technical. And so, so one thing someone taught me when I was very early in my career, I think my first boss taught me is that ultimately you are paid to solve problems. And the more senior you are, the larger, vaguer and weirder your problem is. <laughs> and fundamentally, you're getting paid so that the person paying you doesn't have to worry about the problem. <laughs> that's the only reason. So if they end up worrying about the problem, that's pretty much your first clue that you're not doing your job well. So it's a hard, it's a leap for them to realize that sometimes that means they have to figure out the problem sometimes. Sometimes it isn't even well-defined, right? They have to figure out what part of it is hard. And sometimes it's not the technology. Sometimes it's, there's a guy over there that won't agree with me. And my real job is to convince him. <laughs> and that's effectively what I need to do. And so that, that leap and feeling the freedom to make that decision Realize what the problem is. Realize that you're not being mandated to do it a certain way. Your part of your job is to figure out how to do it. It's a leap, and it can cause a lot of stress for young engineers, you know. And they encounter that step somewhere in their career, and it causes a lot of stress. And you just kind of have to give them examples of how other people have done it, or examples of how they could do it to help them realize this is expected, this is normal. It's even okay to fail in doing this, but it is critical that you reach some comfort with the vagueness. And the reason I put the three E's is because ultimately those are the only three things that ultimately matter 
how you do it doesn't matter as long as it's effective, it's efficient, and it's ethical. I love if you break the law, you'll be in trouble no matter what. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. I actually was having a conversation with an English teacher today because we were talking about chat GPT and, you know, for English teachers, chat GPT is a, something that's hard hitting, you know, foreign language teachers, we've, they've been dealing with this problem for a long time. Google translate has corrupted their, you know, <laughs> their kids because one way or the other and calculators and photo math has disrupted math teachers but for english teachers chat gpt you know speech not speech but word recognition and natural language processing is like ah it's a new thing even though they've had word correct for many years and we had this conversation and it kind of hit me and maybe you can tell me your thoughts on this when i said effective efficient and ethical and the teacher said to me yes but that's for a technical person like yourself what are your thoughts on that? And I'm like, but you have to be efficient, effective, and ethical. Why why waste our time writing a five-paragraph essay when ChatGPT can fix it for you and you can make it better? Any thoughts on if technical people are ethical, efficient, and, and effective, and English teachers are not? I mean, I'm just kidding. He, he's not that, but... Well, so maybe I can kind of maybe talk about the, the three E's in the context of non-technical and then maybe talk about the specific, you know, challenges that English teachers are. So it absolutely applies, you know, outside of technical. And one of the places I think where engineers have a hard time is when they get more senior, their job ceases to be completely technical. And that's where they usually get into the kind of trouble that they're not used to, that school didn't prepare them for. So it applies everywhere and it possibly applies even more in the non-technical. You know, that because being effective in a non-technical role requires an, you know, an amazing array of soft skills that are really hard to pin down. But when someone's got it, they've got it. So so I think it applies. Now, the, now coming back to the English teacher, I think part of the problem is and I really have, you know, have a lot of sympathy for these guys because the, the problem is sometimes, you know, they are not necessarily allowed to not teach things. Like if an English teacher were to say, okay, you know what? I have decided that my students don't need to write essay, learn how to write essays, right? I would like them to critique ChatGPT instead. I don't think they have the authority, the curriculums, you know, the state standards do not give them the authority. So they're in this kind of box where this, you know, the, the standards determine that they are expected to teach X and now X is difficult to teach because the kids are all using ChatGPT to do it. So I think they're just kind of like stuck there. You know, between, you know, I don't, I'm curious what you guys think, but I think that is just makes it just so much harder to maneuver. It It's a it's a difficult conversation because it's twofold, right? Most of the arguments on the, I wouldn't say anti-chat GPT because, you know, it's there. <laughs> so there's no not not happening kind of world. But the, the two arguments are the ethical side point of a student, et cetera, et cetera. But the other side is this worry that we are developing people who can't think for themselves. And so it's a, it's a, it's a weird predicament for a lot of people, and especially as an educator in technology who's, who's pro these problems and the idea that an AI just causes more ability to solve problems. You just have to find out what are our new problems that we are searching to solve. And I think that's a, a mindset that's difficult. Yes. I don't know if you guys saw, but I wrote a Forbes article on this. I, I think it's called, 
yeah, chat GPT and reimagining human intelligence. So I think to your point, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I think, you know, the, the, I personally don't get too hung up on, is it ethical to be using it? You know, I, I mean, if there's a tool and the tool makes your life easier, it, the problem becomes when you keep the problem the same and now the tool solves the problem. If you make the problem different, then suddenly your brain is still engaged. It's engaged doing something bigger than what it could do before. And so now, now if you look at like one of the things I've learned by teaching AI to kids is, you know, so we have a, every year we run a research symposium, you know, where, you know, advanced middle schoolers and high school kids present, you know, research activities. Last year, we had somebody who did detect a forecast a charge for EV batteries, someone who predicted whether you were doing a tennis serve correctly, some lady who did something involving the, the thyroid cancer, you know, bunch of stuff. And these are things, the re- only reason kids can even approach these problems and apply their imagination is because of the level of tech. If you insisted that they write every piece of code by hand, none of these kids could ever have done this. Right? And so it's, it's really a question of being able to give them bigger problems, but that also means that the teachers have to be ready to imagine bigger problems. Yeah, it's bigger it's, problems and evaluate bigger problems. Sorry, you were saying yes. No, I was saying it's it's prompting so many thoughts, and and I think it's getting back to that. Not not even the problem solving when we talk about humanities and we talk about social sciences. I mean, there's certainly problem solving in there, but I, I think it really comes down to the what are we really trying to teach? What's the outcome that we're trying to engender by taking this approach? I mean, why are we writing the essay? Why are we writing the poetry? Why are we making the drawing? Why are we doing the sculpture, right? It's not necessarily about the final product. It's about the process that we go through to produce that, right? The the creativity, the the act of creation. And so as I'm as I'm thinking about what these tools can do and what they can, you know, provide for us what they provide are are maybe ways to avoid the parts that we're not good at so we can focus on the things that we are good at the things that we are creative about and i think that the the part that's challenging for most in these spaces is up to this point they've assessed that creative process by the product that is created Mm. right by the finished product not by the and and with some formative parts, some parts that do assess the steps along the way. But I can also empathize. If I'm an English teacher reading, you know, 150 kids' poetry submissions, yeah, right? That's the thing, yeah. How much am I really taking the time to understand their voice, their their point, their the the style that they bring to it, their their own unique contributions to it versus kind of scanning through this one, making sure that it fits the basic criteria that I have in my head or that I've got on a rubric and giving it a grade and moving on. So there's there's two sides to this. Like to your point, if what we're trying to create here or what we're trying to encourage is the creative process and this act of making things, then we need to continue to find better ways to assess and and give feedback to that creative process and that means we're gonna have to shake up a lot of the ways that we've been assessing things for a long time and kelly's i know given this a lot of thought around assessments and how we give students feedback so they can learn better but that's the things that are are striking me right now is that sure some kid who's got a deadline tomorrow to produce an essay you know five paragraphs on something 
that they really don't care about and they're not interested in, of course, chat GPT is a great shortcut and they're probably going to take it. But if the assignment or the creative process is to really learn about something that they're excited about and interested in and find a way to write something new and different about that, then why would they choose ChatGPT when they can write it themselves and make something new? You know, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think it's it, it's basically the model that, you know, it encourages is a good one. You know, a model of being creative, being, you know, imaginative, being unique. It just unfortunately flies in the face of almost every kind of assessment that is done in the world. And and some of those assessments, you know, the reason that assessments stay the same is because you want to compare 10 years of assessments. That's really, really hard to do in customized project-based learning. On the other hand, if you look at, like, if you go back to the, the three E's, companies don't hire you based on your test score. After a while, nobody cares what your test score was. They can, They want to know if you can solve a problem. And I mean, I'm sure you, you know, you probably remember coding interviews where, you know, someone would ask you about the syntax of code. You know, at least these days, I don't ask anybody about the syntax of code. If you cannot use Google to figure out the syntax of your code, I don't want to hire you regardless of what you remember. Right? I, I mean, I, I want to hear what problem you're solving. So I'm turning right? off like, leak, hear... I'm turning off leak code. No more leak code. I'm done. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. yeah. But but that's but that's really what it comes down to. If if we're looking at what is the value that people bring, not the not just the employee, but the sculptor, the artist, the creator, the writer, the coder, the engineer, what's the value that they bring? Is their unique ability to solve problems in effective and and interesting and efficient ways? Right. If that problem is, I have to get this creative thing out of me and I don't know how to do it, then why not use the tools that you have? Like, why not bring that forward and use the tools that are out there, whether it's chat GPT or generative art or, or something that's new and unique. It's another tool to help bring out that creative part of our human spirit. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as long as you do it in an engaging way, as opposed to a push button way, it will bring out a side of yourself. Yeah. That may not be possible without the tool sort of making things go faster. <laughs> And I, I do have to say that the the idea of creating creating the questions to your own problems, especially in the educational world, is huge. I mean, today, for example, I gave them the data that they collected on themselves, you know, social media, distance, whatever, whatever. And the original idea was go find some CSVs and tell a story and make some plots and practice matplotlib. But the, the idea then turned in after we, I put the book up, we read it out loud in class and we read chunks of it. And I was like, you know, we're going to do storytelling. I keep talking about storytelling in my class, in my own personal boot camp. What are your questions? Come up with eight questions. And I, I'm not sure that the kids have many opportunities to come up with their own direction. And the, the questions were phenomenal. Kids that aren't great coders, right, aren't aren't like the shiniest apples with the the python code all of a sudden were like the magicians the the they were wielding stuff and they're like oh and what about this and this and it's that opportunity oh. to just like let them let them think and it was brilliant 
Yeah, no, I've also, I mean, one of the things I love about teaching this age group is that somewhere around 11, between 11 and 18, there's this period where their brains are really kicked into high gear and the fear they develop as adults has not yet kicked in. Yeah, 100%. During that time, they are fierce, they're imaginative, and they are completely, you know, without any kind of like, oh my God, I won't be considered cool if I, no, say something. And they come up with the most amazing ideas. And I love the storytelling because so one thing I've noticed kind of working with kids is that it's really helpful for them to understand how to speak about what they know. And like one of the reasons why we run this research symposium is to help kids learn how to speak. And one of the things that happens very often is I will be mentoring a kid and he has 10 minutes to describe. He will spend seven of them describing something he found really annoying. And I was like, okay, I get it. I appreciate it. I'm willing to listen to you. But just the fact that you found it annoying doesn't mean it's interesting to someone else. (laughs) What do you think your audience cares about? Well, not this, but it took me so much time. <laughs> I get it. I will listen to you, man. But you know, talk, maybe focus on stuff that they... So just helping them to sort of like understand what the world around them needs to know is a, is a huge lesson. That'll just help them become, you know, better communicators over time. And it sounds like your students have figured out the right questions because half the battle is the right question. Yep. I always say that. And good. Well, and, yeah. and I was going to say one of the things that I think Kelly showed me how to do that worked really well and was very effective was get if they have trouble finding the right questions, encourage them to ask the wrong questions first, right? Get those out and get the bad ideas out of the way. And, and it's amazing how effective that is at getting those creative ideas going because they might ask a question that they think is dumb or irrelevant or not, not a good question to ask because they, they've already been trained what good questions are. And you, get them to think for a moment, wait, wait a minute, that's actually a great question, right? Like you didn't think it was something worthwhile, but it's a really important question to ask. Let's see how we could solve that. And suddenly their whole view changes and they go from being kind of skeptical or apprehensive about getting out there. And now they're engaged. Now they're bought in because something that they came up with is valuable and real. Yeah, no, there's a tremendous opportunity for everyone to sort of find their passion and find their unique idea and see how it applies. And it's very, very engaging when that happens. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, all I have to say is, you know, when I first started coding, I told Sean that Matplotlib was my favorite library. And I remember like five years, I was like, I love Matplotlib. It's so easy. It's so wonderful. Then I got into data science. And then they told me in the course curriculum that machine learning was coming next. And then I found your book and I started... I wanted to share it with my colleagues, not my colleagues, my cohort, who are all adults. It's phenomenal. It just goes through and it puts all these pieces together of, you know, for me, a lot of people ask, why Python? Why do you teach middle schoolers Python? And I and I tell the students all the time, and Sean sold it. It's literally, and now we have ChatGP to say yes, and it's ChatGPT. But it's literally the world around us, and it's a powerful language and an amazing book to go along with the powerful language. And I showed a parent that came in today. I was like, and look, you can do it all with just two pages of code. <laughs> and somebody was really excited about that. So. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you're enjoying it. I do. Thank you. I'm going to steal it from Kelly if I can ever get it away from Just buy your own book. (laughs) Okay. I've already written in this I'm never getting it in my... Oh, fair enough. 
Fair enough. Well, I know we're we're running towards the end of our time together. Nisha, is there any other resources that people should go check out or, you know, places where they can keep an eye on the work that you're producing with your your partners and, you know, and, and coming out of AI Club? What's the best way for people to, you know, keep abreast of everything that's happening? So I think there's probably two places. So one of them is that AI Club has a resources page. There's a ton of stuff in there. You know, we release exercises, code. We have about 400 data sets for kids to go tinker with, kids-safe data sets. And we... I'm just like, mental note, going on the weekly overview tonight. Thank you very much. You, Yep. You had me with kids-safe data sets. I like that. Yeah. And then we, you know, we write blogs, you know, every once in a while. We just launched a a ChatGPT course for teachers. And I have a, there's a five minute video on our website where I talk about it. What is this thing? Where did it come from? Why should you, you know, how should you think about it? And I also have a cute poem that ChatGPT wrote for me explaining chemistry to an eighth grader, <laughs> you know, which I thought was just very sweet and, you know, kind of represents to me all the positive things about that tech. So, yeah, so the resources page and the blogs on the website are a great place to do it. I write in Forbes about once a month, sometimes a little more. You know, and I write about not just education and AI, but just all topics AI. So, so that's another place to kind of look. Those are usually the places where I pick them. And you have a wealth of projects, of, of real-world projects I pulled up, and I think Google Scholar and all kinds of amazing things you did before and very interesting things that it takes people can to read about after they've read your book and learn a little bit more about AI. Thank you. Well, I want to say thank you for joining us tonight. It's been just really enjoyable to chat with you about all of this. And it's an area that we're both excited about and interested in. And it's, it's just lovely to hear your perspective and the thoughts that you're sharing and, and the resources that you've made available to everyone. So thank you again for coming. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, Thanks for having me. Kelly, any announcements for our audience this week? Oh, I'm supposed to plug... I forgot Innovation Institute at Pinecrest. We're hosting Innovation Institute, and I'm trying to remember the dates. It's in April. My boss is going to kill me. It's after April 13th. It is. I'm going to tell you, tell you, tell you, tell you. April 17th and 18th, and it's on our website at Pinecrest. And then also PyCon. Do you want to talk about that? Ed Summit? Yep. We have the... Yes, we have the Education Summit happening on April 20th this year. So that's the Thursday when there are tutorials going on on premises there. We've got the same room as last year. There's plenty of space for everyone. So please sign up. If you're already registered for PyCon, there's no additional fee for registering for the Education Summit. We will probably have a different take on kind of remote attendees this year. We weren't able to get live streaming from the room to our remote attendees. But I know we're working on some ideas for how we can engage the community on that day and make it a, a big Python education day, whether you're there in Salt Lake City or whether you're dialing in remotely, a way to just make it a celebration of computer science and Python and learning. So looking forward to that. If you want to get more details about how to register for that, I'll put the link in the show notes for it. If you have questions for Kelly or I or for, for Nisha, you can always submit that through our website at teachingpython.fm. We're also on Twitter at Teaching Python. I'm at SM Tiber and Kelly is at Kelly Pared on Twitter. I don't have any new social media networks that I've joined in the last few weeks, so no new handles to share. But if you want to get in touch with us, we're always excited to hear from our audience. Please feel free to reach out to us. So I think that does it. So for, for Teaching Python, this is and Sean. This is Kelly signing off. Mm-hmm.